Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation Certified Instructor and Resiliency Expert, helping people to think, speak, and act positively through the challenges of life. You can find out more about me in this interview at my website, which is Tom, the number two, and Tall, T-A-L-L dot com. My guest today is the amazing Phil Geldart, and of the hundreds of interviews I've done, I have interviewed Phil previously. His interview is in the top three to five most listened to, and that reflects mostly on Phil and not on myself. So very, very quality guest. Phil is the founder and CEO of Eagles Flight, a Canadian company focused on improving individual and team productivity. Eagles Flight is presently represented in over 35 countries and enjoys an enviable reputation for customer service, product effectiveness, and just plain old having fun. Phil has considerable experience with acquisition and divestiture initiatives, managed sales and distribution, and has created a number of leadership programs. He has also written three books, uh, in Your Hands, The Behaviors of a World-Class Leader, which provides practical and clear guidelines for those with responsibility for others, In Search of the Gold of the Desert Kings, A Journal of My Travels, an entertaining story based on Eagle's Flight Gold of the Desert Kings program, and Lead Yourself, Lead Others, an invaluable guide for those in the early stages of their leadership journey. In addition to his corporate experience, Phil has worked for a number of years in the university environment. He has also been very heavily involved in Christian youth ministries and related leadership and discipleship training. Welcome to the show today, Phil. Thank you, Tom. Great to be back. Uh, I, uh, we mentioned, I talked to you before the show about how proud I am of you that uh, your faith and your business are not separated. You proudly proclaim it and tell it and have it introduced in shows like this. And even myself, I'm guilty of separating the two and not so much mentioning it in my talks, uh, although God has been so important to me in my and my journey with my arthritis. And so... Uh, I, I applaud you for that. That's uh, I really, really admire that. Thank you. Well, it's God-given, the, the gifts we have and the gifts we use, and we're kind of here for a higher purpose. So work Thank pays God. the bills, but my heart is elsewhere, I think, many times. Amen, amen. And so uh, you guys are in 35 countries, started out in Canada and in 35 countries. That's very impressive. Very few companies make it into 35 countries. Uh, let's just start a little bit by talking about uh, the founding of Eagles Flight and how you managed to get represented in 35 countries, because that's very impressive for any company. Well, it actually started in my basement, Tom, uh, 26 years ago. And at the time, Eagles Flight's real point of difference was experiential learning. I I just felt that it was boring to listen to people talk and use PowerPoints and lecture at me, and I, I didn't feel that I was getting real value. So came up with a way to teach things that people could learn for themselves, uh, and it became quite successful. Essentially, if you were to think of a game that you would play, but the learning is actually hidden in the game. So at the end of maybe a 90-minute activity, you could then debrief it for a couple of hours and help people understand that their normal performance that they normally did every day on the job was reflected in that 90-minute window. 
and showed them the outcome of that performance and then what they could do differently to change the performance. And so because of that, they really had a conviction that said, man, you know what, that is who I am, that is what I do, and I could be better. And somehow this game has helped me realize what to do differently to be better. So that was the genesis of Eagle's Flight. And when we went out to um, sort of other training companies around the world, they thought that that would be useful in their own portfolio. And they thought, well, we would really love that. In some cases, they would simply carry only exclusive Eagle's Flight products. And in other cases, they would represent other training companies and use us as part of their portfolio. So because I think we were so unique in that learning methodology, it was very appealing. And as folks heard about it, they were willing to bring it into their own companies. And as a result, we got represented around the world. So it's a bit like a franchise operation, really. Not in every country, but in most. Wow. And as you mentioned, you were unique back then. 26 years ago, if you mentioned the word experiential learning, I imagine a number of people looked at you like, what is this dude talking about? <laughs> Whereas now it's very common and it's a preferred method of learning. Even, um, not even, especially my friend Judy Williamson, the director of Napoleon Hill World Learning Center, all of the teaching she does, especially for the uh, Napoleon Hill Foundation Leadership Certification, is experiential learning. And you end up learning as much from the people in the class and what you're doing as from the actual classroom text-based learning. And, and so, yeah, you were unique at that time, probably one of the very first companies that ever started talking about experiential learning. You probably had to explain it to people back then. You don't have to explain it to people now, I'm sure. Not as much, Tom, but you're right. That's good. And now, you, I received recently, and the reason I contacted you to interview you again is you have a new book, although I might call it a booklet. I received it last week, and it's uh, on culture transformation. And uh, I was so excited about it because I really believe that the key to change or improving any business is the culture, the culture transformation. Um, maybe the culture, and if you don't have the great culture, if you want to change your business, culture transformation is the key because you change the culture and your people uh, the customers and the results of your business are just going to follow. Uh, how did you come upon deciding on writing about that uh, culture transformation? Because it is, I would think, one of the top two or three keys to improving any business. Yeah, um, great question, Tom. I think the writing of the book evolved. For the last several years, Eagle's Flight has been doing work that was really around behavior change in companies. So we are kind of officially labeled a training company, but it's more that we use training as one of the ways to get people to behave differently. But most often, clients are coming to us saying, my people look like this, and we'd like them to look like that. And it's not just an intellectual shift, it's actually a behavioral shift. And can you guys do that? So we've been doing it for, for quite a while now. But I've noticed in the last couple of years, two significant things are happening in the marketplace. The first is that the appreciation for the contribution that an individual can make has risen dramatically. I think partly, as you know, um, after the 2008-2009 recession, organizations came back, they did well, profit was good, but they did it in ways other than just hiring a lot of people back, which is both good and bad. So the folks that they had, they were looking at how can we leverage the talents that these people have more effectively. The workplace is changing, the knowledge base of the workers is much greater, so companies are saying, well, we have this, all this talent, how can we use it? And that is forcing them to think about getting people to behave differently, which is putting pressure on their culture. And that has caused them to hit the second point, which is, you know what, a competitive advantage may be ours if we can transform our existing culture. So the first point 
recognizing that there's much more capacity in people than they've been getting, and secondly, realizing that that's going to require a shift in the culture has uh, created quite a bit of business for Eagle's Flight, and I thought there's no real literature out there that I could find that help people understand how to do that well, because I think it's quite difficult. And that led to the writing of the book and how you, in fact, go about transforming a culture. So that was right. kind of the... How-tos are so important. It's not just the leader of the company saying, hey, we've got to change our culture around here. People <laughs> sharpen up, smarten up. Uh, someone, I think there's a phrase or a saying, the beatings will continue until the productivity improves. Uh, that's not culture transformation or writing it on the wall or in your mission statement. And so, And yet at the same time, there's probably you know, uh, 92 different ways or things you can look at when you're looking to transform your culture. But like in most things, for instance, Napoleon Hill's principles, uh, if you don't have a definiteness of purpose, the other 16 principles aren't going to help you that much. What are the non-negotiables, the musts of culture transformation? Yeah, great question. I think, let me just preface that by saying that I would define culture within any company as the sum total of the behaviors of the individuals. So if you want to know what a culture in a company really is, you need to look at what people are doing. And I say that because very often people will define their culture in one way, but that's more aspirational than actual. So if you really want to know what the culture is, you have to look at what people are doing. So if you then say, well, what are the non-negotiables of changing it? I think there are three things. I think the single most important thing, Tom, is executive leadership must be seen to be leading it. So if people are behaving in a certain way and you want them to behave in a different way, they are going to look to their leaders to see how those leaders are behaving. And if the behavior of the leaders is no different than it ever used to be, then it's very difficult to get the rest of the organization to follow. So that's often difficult because I think senior folks think, well, you know, I'm the boss and I kind of know what needs to be done and they're right, they do know, but I'll just tell people what to do or I'll give them training, but it really doesn't affect me. And I think that's a critical mistake. So that the, it has to be modeled right from the top. So that would be my first one. Mm-hmm. I think the second one would be a clear line of sight to the benefit. Now, again... If you look at a culture transformation, within an organization, executives will sit around the, the executive, at the executive meeting and they'll go, you know what, we really need to transform. We need to be more customer-centric or more innovative, more productive, whatever it is. And they're very clear why that must happen. They, they have a very clear reason for doing that because it's not something they do lightly. You don't just wake up one day and say, we'll change our culture but they feel with a high degree of conviction that that new culture will benefit them in some way. But very often, the benefit does not cascade all the way down to the organization. It might make it down a layer or two, if you're lucky, but it doesn't get all the way down. So the average rank-and-file employee 5,000 miles away from the executive suite goes, why are we doing this? I don't understand. Why do we have to change? I don't think we need to change. And worse their immediate supervisor goes, yeah, I don't know. It's just another thing coming out. So the, the actual benefit to the company of the transformed culture is not apparent. And I think people then have a very hard time committing to it, being willing to live through it, do what's necessary. They just don't understand why it's important. And most employees in, in organizations want the organizations to excel, so once they know that a certain behavior is really critical to the future and the success of the company, it's much easier to get them on board. So I think that's the second non-negotiable, the clear line of sight to the benefit. And the third, Tom, would be very practical. And it's what I call stop, start, continue. So think about coming into work one day and being told that your culture is going to change and that there's value in doing it. You go, okay, got that. So what do you want me to do mm -hmm. differently? And, and very often, it's articulated in a, in a slightly abstract way or, well, now we want you to do this and now we want you to do that. 
But realistically, this person coming to work has got a full-time job. They're already working, you know, whatever it is, 35, 45 hours a week. People are dependent on what they do. They, they've got a path that they follow, and typically they do it well. And so now you want me to do something differently or more, and I don't really quite understand how that affects my day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So you literally have to sit with the employee and say, okay, because of this transformation, here are the things you're doing that we want you to keep doing. It's really important. Keep doing that. Here are things that you're doing that are no longer necessary. You can now stop doing these things. This is no longer consistent with the behavior. And here are the things that we want you to start doing. So an example, very often an organization is looking to be more empowering. They, they want a more engaged workforce. So you need to say, okay, these are the things you're doing well. Keep doing that. But now when you get this document, instead of just passing it on after you've done whatever you do with it, we want you to look at it and see if it is aligned with our corporate values or see if there's an opportunity for innovation or see if there's something about it here that could actually lead to an improved customer service. And we want you to take action in one of these following three ways. The person goes, oh, okay, I never used to do that. Fine, if that's what you want me to do, I'll stop doing the just pass it on, and I'll look at it against those three lenses. As a simple example, because now the, the new culture has practicality associated with it. So I would say that the non-negotiables are modeled by the executives, a clear line of sight to the benefit to, to the outcome, and practically help me know what to stop, start, and continue doing. Does that make sense? It it does, and um, I totally uh, agree. And as you said, uh, what do I start? What do I do differently? <laughs> I've been working here five years. I have a great attitude. I smile every day. What do I do different? What do, what do you want me to do? And so, yeah, to really spell it out for people is very, 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 very important. Now, just like there are non-negotiables to change the culture, there also must be principles that could derail culture transformation. Uh, what are some of those principles that could really uh, send your transformation of your culture off the tracks? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I I think once you're underway, again, I would say there are probably, again, three things, three major things. The first is that people see this culture transformation as a program, a flavor of the month, uh, something which is the latest thing we're going to do for a couple of years. And that is the kiss of death. It has to be a true DNA exchange because a culture is what people do every day. So you don't want them to just adopt some new behaviors for the time being which go away. And I think that is often the case if you, if you miss one of the earlier principles, and that is you don't understand why you're doing it. Because some senior experienced person out in the field could say, well, I've never done it that way, and I don't think that's the way we should do it, and we better just stick with the way we've always done it. You know, this too will pass. Hmm. And that will kill it. And I, again, you know, someone said to me, so Phil, how do you measure whether you really transform the culture? And the answer for me is that the people who initiated the culture transformation could leave the company, get promoted, move to somewhere else, and the culture still remains transformed. So in the early days, typically some CEO or senior executives are pushing the transformation, but it has occurred when it doesn't need to be pushed to be demonstrated. And for that, it's got to be a true DNA exchange. So that would be the first thing I think that would derail it, treating it like a program instead of an all-encompassing transformation, a real change. Right. right. The, the second flavor, flavor of the month sort of thing. Flavor of the month, yep, yep. Uh, and you know, it's never. By the way, it's never intentional. People don't set out saying, "Let's make it a flavor of the month." What they do is they set out with a lot of enthusiasm, and then they had a bad quarter, or they make an acquisition, or a new competitor comes in the marketplace, and they say, "Oh, now we have to deal with that." And right. so they move the focus off of what they initiated to the newest thing that they have to tackle. And basically, what you've just said is, "Well, we really weren't serious about the culture transformation. It's just something we were doing until something else came along." And you got to be willing to stay the course regardless of what what hits the uh, you right. know hits the desk. 
The second thing is failing to include everyone. I'm often asked, often, often, so Phil, okay, do we really have to include everybody? I mean, do we really need it? Does everybody have to be involved? And I would say, well, yeah, uh, absolutely. If you want to change the culture, it means the way people behave has to change. It doesn't mean the way some people behave changes. So right. you and I are working in the same company, and you're behaving in the new way, and I'm behaving in the old way, and that's okay. I, that doesn't make any sense. So, again, everybody who's going to be affected needs to be included right from the get-go. Uh, this isn't something you test somewhere in a pilot group and then see if it works or not. You get it right, and you go. And I would say you also need to be very careful to include the unions in this because they are a vital component of the workforce. So you, you can't exclude groups like unions. You have to say if this is our culture and we want it to look, go from one thing to another, then everybody who's reflected in that has to be included in the training and the development. Wow. So I think a bunch of business owners just got upset at you there, but it's a, such a valid point. Can we just talk a little bit about that? Are unions open to that kind of talk? Well, I would say certainly in my experience they are, but it depends. It, it's how you approach it. If you go to uh, virtually any union executive and ask them if they are interested in the long-term viability of the enterprise, they will say, of course, we want the company around for a long time because the company provides jobs and security and employment and pensions. So the union is interested in the long-term viability of the enterprise. There may be arguments about how much we get paid per hour and those kinds of things, but there's rarely dissent around we want, to, we want to be in business for the long term. And that's what management wants. Management also wants to be in business for the long term and increase shareholder value. So that is a shared common objective. Where it often breaks down is the union's fail just like a line manager might fail to fully understand the benefit of the transformation and the consequences of not transforming. So if, if somebody fails to understand why we should do something, then they're clearly going to raise objections, and often those objections are legitimate. But if I understand that the long-term success of the company is dependent on moving from one set of behaviors to another, then typically I'm going to get on board. And uh, certainly in my experience, the unions are smart. They know what they're doing. Uh, they may have a different short-term agenda than management at times, but the long-term agenda remains the same. And very often the unions will share a point of view in terms of, okay, but you need to understand that helping the unionized worker change their behavior is going to require a different approach than the approach you take with the non-unionized worker. And we can help you with that, but one size doesn't always fit all. So mm -hmm. I think it's back to the DNA. And people forget that whether you're unionized or non-unionized, whether you're profit or non-profit, you already have a culture. It's not like there is no culture. We have a culture, and we can articulate it. So to change it isn't to say, well, we're adding something or taking away something. It's just that what we have needs to look a little differently. So we've already got it. It's just a matter of we want it to evolve into something that will make us more competitive. So I think that kind of thinking and communication will help and go a long ways toward what needs to be done sort of throughout the organization at every level and with every group. Right. And now, so I had interrupted you. I think that was point number two. But what about yeah, other things that are putting us off the rails? Yeah, the, the third thing I would say that could derail it is being unwilling to stay the course, to allowing other things that are apparently important to come in and take the pressure off the transformation. So let me give you an example here, Tom. The, if you have an organization, it's like an hourglass. So the sand is all sitting there neatly at the bottom. It's quite content. It's being, you know, sitting there. It's happy. It's doing its thing. When you do a culture transformation, you turn the hourglass upside down. So immediately, some of the sand falls right to the bottom. 
Some of the sand takes longer to slide down. It kind of sticks to the side. Mm-hmm. And some takes quite a while to finally make it through. And that's a good picture of a culture transformation. You're essentially taking the company and asking it to turn upside down. Not that completely, but in the metaphor. And there will be some early adopters who are going to jump on board right away and go, yep, perfect, we agree, let's get on with it. There are some who will take longer. They will want to see if the organization is serious. They want to check it out, and they want to take a little longer to learn the new behaviors. But they ultimately slide down. And then there are some that are just at the very tail end. They take the longest to get there. So the transformation takes time, and those leading it need to understand that different people learn behaviors and adopt at at different speeds. Mm -hmm. But management gets frustrated. They get impatient. They want everybody to get it right off the bat. They, They want the benefit immediately. And therefore, they get some early wins, and then they go on to the next thing. And they're not willing to stay the course. Or something happens. Something unforeseen happens. And they think, oh, well, you know, we just we can't do this culture transformation thing now. Okay, but why not? You said it was going to benefit us, so we can't not do it. Well, you know, we have other reasons now, which simply means that, it, in my judgment, it wasn't thought out properly from the beginning because right. nothing is going to kill it faster than being willing to not keep it a priority. And the way you often see this, Tom, in, in practice is – in the first year, the culture transformation is led by very senior executives. And then in the next year, they sort of delegate it down a level, thinking, well, it's underway now. And, and in the next year, they, the NAC level delegates it down another level. And before you know it, the culture transformation is clearly no longer an executive priority. And I, I see it, and I can tell you, it will not work. I, the moment it begins to be delegated as a, as a priority then you know it is beginning to fail. Now, that doesn't mean senior management have to be involved in it 24 hours a day, but they have to be seen to be leading it. They have to be modeling it. They have to be talking about the benefits of it. They have to share the successes. They ha- they're the leaders, and the body follows the head, so you want to follow your leader. So as long as the leaders represent that it is still a priority for the company, then the transformation will be successful. But if they take their eye off that ball or if they don't include everybody, or they treat it as a program, it will probably derail. Mm. Mm. Wow, wow. Uh, You're speaking to a lot of business owners here, so that's uh, right, and I totally agree. Now, when you talk of culture transformation, a lot of people will think, oh, that's the job of HR, hire the right people, and that's our culture transformation, whereas... Uh, line managers, uh, that's something maybe a line manager might say is like, well, I got these people already. HR hired them. How am I going to change the culture? That's not up to me. It's up to our people hiring. Uh, what is the role of HR versus line managers that are working day-to-day in operations with their people? Okay. So I think here, Tom, you're going to get my viewpoint. Uh, it's my point of view. Not everybody will agree with me, but let me preface it by saying that I taught swimming for many years, and if you drop a coin in the bottom of the pool and you ask a child to go get the coin, they will splash around and, I mean, obviously it can't be too deep, Um, they'll splash around and they'll go down and get the coin. And you tell them when they've got the coin to just look up at you, so They get the coin, they keep flailing, and they look up through the water, and they come to the surface. So, in fact, that child has swum to the bottom of the pool and swum to the top. The reason that happened is because they dropped their head to look down for the coin while their arms and legs were flailing, and they lifted their head to look up at me after they picked the coin up. The body follows the head, as I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier. So if I'm a worker in an organization, let's say I'm in a distribution center and my job is to make sure that the uh, pallets are packed and shipped out, my head is either my foreman or the supervisor who runs that warehouse. That's, that's the guy I follow every day or the gal. If I'm in sales, the lady who's the head of sales in my region, that's, that's the lady I follow. She's the head. 
So throughout an organization, every person is probably most significantly influenced on a day-to-day basis by their line manager. Mm -hmm. So if you want to change a culture, the line manager has to be skilled at doing that. They have to be taught how to do it. They have to be required to model the behaviors. They have to be the head that the body will follow. And that works all the way up to the very top line at the head of the organization. Senior management has to lead the senior VPs and the senior VPs, the VPs, and so on. That's the only way you're going to get people to change behavior. Well, you notice in that illustration, I didn't mention the word HR. Right. So right. If, if you think about culture transformation, you think, okay, so how do you want us to behave? I go to my leader. My leader guides me, coaches me, tells me what to stop, start, continue. So it is a line management function. So that is critical. Without that, it will not work. Now let's pull back. How does the line manager know how to coach in that new environment, how to communicate the benefit, what they should model, what the new behaviors are? How does the line manager, whether they're the most senior executive of the company or the foreman at the warehouse, know what this new cultural and the new behaviors look like and how we implement them and how we deal with problems and so on? Ah, now we turn to HR. We say, HR, your job is to spearhead this initiative. You are to support it, guide it, organize the training, manage the administration, make sure the communication is correct. You are, if you will, the power behind the throne. If you bring in someone like Eagle's Flight or experts at this, your job is to manage Eagle's Flight, to help them understand how to integrate with the company. So HR plays a vital role in the implementation because that's their job. They're the people folks, and so as the people folks, they should be the one putting on the training, organizing the communication, monitoring what's happening, measuring. They should do all of that, the, what I call the power behind the throne. But they should not be leading it. They should not be seen to be leading it. They should be supporting line management as line management leads it. And once that distinction is clear, HR goes perfect. That's a role we can do because we've already discovered that we can't impose our will on the organization because that's the job of the manager. So then you get this sort of hand-in-glove synergy between HR, who was being the, the provider of content and the guider of the initiative, but line management, beginning with the executives, as seen to lead it and being the model of it. I love it, and you're so right. Uh, uh, a person's day-to-day job has directly affected their 40 or 50 hours, whatever they put in, by their direct manager. Uh, HR is on the front end in the hiring, and often people go to them for administrative and benefits and maybe training, but the day-to-day person who is affecting the worker's mood and attitude and actions is their direct manager, their line manager, and how he behaves directly affects the feelings, emotions, and behaviors of the people that work for him. So yeah. you change the line manager and you train them, and then automatically, not automatically, with a lot of practice and implementation, the people underneath will get the change. Uh, whereas if you put it in the hands of HR, after a person's hired, generally they only encounter HR two or three times a year when they have a question or a concern about something. But on a 40-hour basis, their direct manager is the one that's impacting their life and the one they're going home talking to their husband or wife about or <laughs> complaining about or bragging about. And so, yeah, you got to start it with a person who's most directly affecting the employee's day-to-day work. And so yep. great, great, great distinction there. And now... Uh, actually, Tom, just, let me just jump in for one sec. You actually put your finger on an interesting point, which I neglected, because in addition to the HR being the provider of the transformation, they also are the ones that uh, typically are responsible for things like performance management, hiring, um, promotion, high potential promotion, and so on. So 
they can help to make sure that the people that they hire are aligned with the new culture, the people that get promoted are aligned with demonstrating the new culture, that the high potentials that get the attention are the ones that demonstrate the new culture. So they actually have a significant role to play in making sure that the new culture is sustained through the hiring performance management promotion process. Mm, Good distinction there. Very, very good distinction. And now with any change that a company makes, senior management, any kind of management wants to measure the change. And so uh, what do you do? Do you go around just asking people, are you happier now? Are you more engaged than you were three months ago? How are you feeling? How do you measure what could be a touchy, feely, emotional, uh, more than a numbers thing, uh, how do you measure the results on culture transformation? Because it's not necessarily a number you can put on a piece of paper and say, yeah, we went from a six to a nine. Oh, what's the difference, six and nine? Uh, so how does a business leader interested in changing the culture measure it from start to various periods of time to see if it is having effect in his organization? Yeah, um, that's insightfully asked because <laughs> I agree with the way you phrased that question. I, I'm going to give you two answers. I'm going to give you an 80% answer and then the, 20, the remaining 20%. The 80% answer is, and I, people are often surprised at this, the first thing you do is you walk into the CFO's office and say, how are we going to measure this? That's the first thing you do. People, wait, wait a minute, this is a soft, fuzzy thing. So right. no, it's not. Here's the deal the organization produces something that is measured every day, and the CFO is charged with measuring that. So you, you, it depends what it is. You can measure profit. You can measure growth, capital expenditure, and factories, which is, wouldn't be a CFO, be a controller, but you can measure output, quality. There's a number of measures, depending on what it is, that measure the success of the company, and those measures ultimately roll up into shareholder value, typically. Hmm. Now... Those measures that exist, be they whether you're talking all the way from factories and distributions and controllers and all that data being rolled up, but all those measures already exist and they are the result of the existing culture. The existing culture produces a benefit or an outcome. If you're nonprofit and you're in the service industry, you tend to produce a benefit versus an outcome. But So there's a benefit or an outcome that every organization produces, and they already have ways to measure that effectiveness. And now someone comes and says, let's change the culture. Okay, so how will that change the benefit or the outcome? Because what we do and the way we do it, we already have those measures. So the culture transformation would never be initiated at the executive level unless the benefit or the outcome of the organization were to improve in some fashion. Now, I'm going to give you a qualifier in a minute, but that is critical to understand. You don't measure the culture transformation. You measure the benefit of it. And unless you can measure the benefit of it, unless the CFO is with you when you go talk to the shareholders or the executives, it will never fly. Because why are we going to spend money on something that, that we, we can't measure? And in fact, people often call it fluffy. Well, we're not going to spend money on that. We're going to spend money on improving the outcome, and the way we are going to do it is culture transformation, as opposed to make an acquisition, grow a sales force, open a distribution center, build a new whatever. There are many things, many levers a company has to improve its measures of success. Culture transformation is one of them and should be measured in the same way. So mm. let me give you – make sense? Yeah. Let me give you – Let me give you a subset of that. Very rarely does a company want to transform its culture at the macro level. At times, they do. But typically, culture transformation has a focal point. We wish to be more customer-centric, for example. We would like to be more innovative. We would like to have sales force that moves from farmers to hunters. We want to transform our sales force. In that case, the measures that the CFO or using that office of the CFO are looking at are focused. So we already have measures around our customer effectiveness. Those are the measures we want to go up. 
We already have measures around whether or not our sales force can bring in new business. Those are the ones we want to go up. We already have measures around the number of innovations we bring to market. So most often, culture transformation isn't necessarily the whole company in a given direction. Typically, it's an aspect of the culture that they want to transform. Rarely does the company say, we need to transform our whole culture. It's like, we're happy with our culture. We're good in our values and our ethics and our care. And so we just want to be more innovative. We just want to be more customer-centric. So they've already narrowed that focus. And so the measures can go aligned against that measure. And that's way more exciting for an employee. Instead of saying, we're going to do a culture transformation, and guess what? You know, we hope it works and get a six instead of a seven. We say, guys, listen, here's how we are in the marketplace competitively. If we behave differently, our competitiveness is going to go up by a factor of 50%. And these are the measures we're going to use. They're the measures we've always used. We're just going to see them go up 50%. It'll put us number one in the marketplace. Job security goes up. People go, all right, I'm in for that. Mm -hmm. Because they can see the direct line of sight to the benefit. And the measures are not abstract. They're, They're practical. And that also gives you credibility throughout the organization because now when HR comes to the line manager running the warehouse, it's not like, well, we want you to go through culture transformation training. It's guys, here are the numbers. Here's how they've got to improve. For that, the behaviors have to change. We want them to change from this to that. People go, okay, we get that. Makes sense. So that's a ver- that is the essence of measurement. That's the 80%. Is that okay? Can I go to the 20 or do you want to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that makes total sense. And I hadn't even actually ever thought of it that way before you mentioned it. So uh, uh, thank you for uh, reorganizing my brain there. Good point. Okay, no problem. Now, the the other 20%, and it is 20%, but it's important. If the first 80 are the hard measures of success, this is why we are doing it, and build the transformation to achieve that. The 20 reflects the mindset of the organization because you are changing the way people behave, which means you have to change the way they think about things. Uh, If you are moving from an organization that is hierarchically driven to one where people are given more freedom of action and therefore you measure the benefit, but you're still, you're changing the way the people think. Oh, I have to think differently. I have to think differently about how I approach my sales call. Whatever it is, there is always a mindset component. And to measure that mindset, the only way that I know is to do survey work. Where it's, and you will know often for the you know, top 50 best companies and so on, they survey the employees. And an employee survey or a culture survey is a useful tool because it helps you capture where the mind of the employee is. But mm-hmm. I would use those measures kind of like the speedometer on my car. Am I going fast enough or too fast? It, it guides me in the implementation of the transformation. But the true measure of success is whether I get to my destination or not. So the 80% is, do I actually get there? But the 20% is on the journey, I probably should be checking that speedometer periodically or I may never get there. And that 20% is surveying the employees to understand where their heads are, whether they feel we're doing a good job, whether the leaders are actually modeling the behaviors, whether I actually am being told what the stop, start, continue, all the things that I've talked about, you, mm-hmm. can, you can determine whether or not that is happening through some form of a survey that checks the mindset. The danger is that that 20% is used as the measure of success. Oh, well, that's how we're going to measure culture transformation. We'll do a survey. Well, that's not effective. No one's going to buy that. I mean, no senior executive. People, the senior management do not want to pay for training, and I don't blame them, but they will pay for the results of training. So we want to be careful that we don't just think that giving training is culture transformation. It's the results of the training that we have to give, and so we focus on the results. The training is just a vehicle. But it does help to get a sense for whether the training is being accepted or not, and that's the mindset survey work. Is that clear? Yes, I love it. Uh, now, at the same time, uh, organizations are made of people, and people will go to extreme and great lengths to avoid pain. And culture transformation, I imagine, can involve some levels of pain and some actions that require pain 
uh, is it painful? Does it have to be painful? Is there a no. way to uh, uh, lessen the pain? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, good thought. Let me um, let me share a couple 30-second stories, and then I'll answer the question. Someone once told me the only people that like change are wet babies. So I mean, you grandparent, <laughs> and uh, there's truth in that. We ran a, a course once, and the lady who was running it got people to come in, sit down at the tables. They chatted for a few minutes. She said, get acquainted. And so after 10 minutes or so of getting acquainted, they met their colleagues. She stood up as if she were going to run the course. And then she said, I want everybody to stand up, take your material, take your coffee cup, and go find some other place to sit. Oh, there was kind of low-level grumbling, and people got up, and they moved. And when they sat down again, she said, how do you feel? And virtually to a person, they said, well, not very good. I mean, you know, we were just getting settled. She said, listen, you had 10 minutes to get, a com- to get comfortable in your new environment with the colleagues at your table and your space. I changed that, and you became uncomfortable and a bit grumpy. Can you imagine what happens when you take an employee who's basically worked in the culture for 10 or 15 years, and you're asking them to change it? They're, you think it's tough to change from table to table. You can imagine how people are feeling when you ask them to change their culture. And that was very insightful. So I think the issue around the painfulness of a culture transformation is less about the changing of the culture, emphasis on the word culture, and more about the change. So in order to deal with that, you simply have to realize people tend to not want to change, not because they are resistive, but because they have learned to be efficient in the current environment. So when you change the environment, their efficiency drops, their productivity drops. So their desire to contribute to the company is put at risk because you've changed their environment in some way. So the change is not a knock on the person, it's just a reality. They're, They're going to be less productive in their mind. So what you need to do, going right back to where we began this conversation, you need to focus on the benefit of the transformation. Look at the benefit. Look, we will be into the, will get us into the next century. We'll be able to launch this new product faster or quicker. We'll have a huge competitive advantage. We'll make an acquisition that will double our size. We'll, in whatever the transformation is going to produce, every single employee will be able to contribute more every day. Whatever it is that is driving the transformation is in and of itself exciting. It will have to be, by definition. No executive is going to make a transformation for a company that in some way doesn't benefit the company, which is exciting. That's what we're all about. We want the company to prosper. So failure to really harness the enthusiasm around the benefit will play into the hand of, oh, this is painful. On the other hand, really helping to capture that benefit and reinforce it over and over and over and showing how that benefit is paying back, as per our conversation about measurement, shifts it from being painful to exciting. And people don't even think about, they never, the word about is it painful or not doesn't enter in. It's like, how exciting is it? A lot exciting? Very, a little exciting? You're moving to the new world. And that's where it's so important that senior management and the whole organization is aligned around achieving these new benefits as a result of behaving differently. And then it's not painful. Now, it will require change, but it's now a change that is exciting to give you the new vision, the new future, the new horizon. And so it shifts from being painful to something new that I have to learn. Well, that's okay because there's a benefit to it. So that, I think, is a very important... Your question is critical. It's very important because unless you understand that distinction, it will be painful, people will resist it, and those are the kinds of things that move you away from success. But it doesn't have to. It should be an exciting time, and it's just a matter of approaching it through those lenses. Mm, Wow, this is some amazing... Uh, food for thought for leadership, managers, any type of business. Uh, to end the show, Phil, talk, uh, direct people to your website, maybe where they can get the book, and uh, maybe anything new and exciting or cool that's coming up in the next little while for Eagle yeah. Flight. Well, they're more than welcome to go to the website. And, in fact, if they want, they can just send us a note. We're happy to send them a complimentary copy of the book. That's great. A complimentary uh, copy? Wow, okay. It's, 
It's available on all downloadable uh, e-book devices. Okay. There's uh, 20 different devices. So if they just send an email into Eagles Flight, uh, they can do phil.geldart at eaglesflight.com, P-H-I-L dot G-E-L-D-A-R-T at eaglesflight.com and say, hi, I was on Tom's radio show. I'd like to get a copy of the book. We'll send you a link. You can get a free copy or you can go on iBooks and buy it, which would kind of be nuts. Uh, so that's that, and I think at the end of this month, we're just going to uh, talk a little bit internally here about the transformation around customer centricity, because that's becoming more and more crucial. We've done some quite a bit of work in that area, so we'll be uh, focusing on that towards the end of this month. But it's still the transformation principles, but ta- sort of focused on customer centricity. Nice, and so Eagles flight.com and we don't even have yeah, to spell all, all one word no apostrophe right we don't have to spell it for people eaglesflight.com as you said no apostrophes no hyphens just all one word and a lot of great resources on that website i was on there today and there's a lot of tremendous great resources along with culture transformation but lots of other great resources there as well so eagles flight.com visit the site it's uh there's a reason you're in 35 countries you're doing some amazing thing uh things and so anybody leader manager even an employee well worth going to the site eaglesflight.com thanks so much uh, for joining me today phil you've opened my eyes and gave me some new things to think about and i'm sure a lot of business leaders and managers uh are going to experience the same thing when they learn about what you're doing and your thoughts and and how you're helping companies with culture transformation. And as I said at the start, I believe uh, it's one of the top two or three things that a company can do to change their results is to change their culture. And as you had mentioned, oftentimes they already have a good culture. It's not like, okay, where our culture sucks, so you've got to totally change it. Often they have a good culture. It's just some tweaks and some changes that will just bring them to the next level. Exactly. Yeah, that's well put, Tom. Thanks so much, Phil. I appreciate it. I know many business leaders and managers and employees are going to be very thankful for the work you do. Okay. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome, and have a great evening. Take care. Okay. Bye now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.